Welcome to Farscape Friday, Episode 6. We'll be discussing the Farscape episode, Thank God It's Friday Again. I'm Kay here with my co-host Taz. Hello. Let's get started. Welcome back. Today we'll be discussing the Season 1 episode, Thank God It's Friday Again. To quickly summarize the episode, Dargo's hyper-rage makes John go into hiding. When John finally comes out, the crew goes searching for Dargo on a nearby inhabited planet, only to find out that not only is he not angry, he's at peace. While Zan and Crichton try to figure out what Kool-Aid Dargo drank, Aaron has to become a scientist and figure out why Rigel's bodily fluids are explosive. So in this episode, we encounter the trope of the oppressed, brainwashed society that must be shown the light of what's really happening to them. And to this end, there's a couple of mysteries going on in this episode um, that drive both the A and the B plots. So as mentioned in the summary, we have a society down on the planet. And this species is like kissing cousins, is what John calls it, of the Sebations. So they, they look more or less human with some different coloring. And Dargo has joined this cult-like society where every single day is the day before rest day, and they have this big bashing party. And then it's the kind of society where announcements over the loudspeaker, they tell everyone to take joy in their work, which is farming these tannet roots all day in the hot sun. But while around them, they're at this city, and John notices it's crumbling around them and falling apart. And no one seems to remember that they're owed a day of rest because the next day they all go out to work again. So the big mystery here is why does everyone act like they're high? Because they all act like they're high. And what's the deal with this tannet root that's so important that they keep farming it and farming it and farming it? And so John, down the planet, tackles this mystery. Since the last time we saw Dargo in this episode, before we meet him again on the planet, he was off the scale in terms of rage. One of the big ways that the show really effectively shows that they're, that this isn't just, oh, the society is naturally very peaceful is we see Dargo becoming completely at peace and acting like he has no desire to go back up on the ship. And I think this is really effective on a couple of levels because in the last episode that we reviewed, Back to Back to Back to the Future again, that in that one, we had Dargo acting completely out of character. And when he came back, there was kind of this acknowledgement that it was out of character. So then when we see him here and he's acting at peace again, we're also supposed to believe that, yes, this is out of character for him again. And I think it's a very effective way that the show is is showing what's going on. And actually, Aaron, Aaron comments on it. And I'm going to play a quick quote from Aaron about Dargo. You are a warrior. Act like one. I'm no warrior. I've been a prisoner now and a fugitive longer than I was ever a warrior. Don't you think it was time I stopped lying to myself about who I really am? And so I think that's a really effective way that the show kind of shows that there's something very, very wrong going on here and that the planet isn't a normal place. Right. And I also like that from that quote that you get, there's this little bit of Dargo characterization. He says, I have been a prisoner and a fugitive longer than he was ever a warrior. And it kind of goes back to show something that Zan's commented on, both in this episode and the premiere, that Dargo's really young too. And, and mm-hmm. I find that putting Dargo back in context of his life and what he's done so far with it. 
So they all go down to the planet to try and get Dargo back. So it's Zan, Aaron, Rigel, and John, and they're at the party. That was the background music we heard. Eventually, though, Aaron and Rigel have to leave because Aaron can't take the heat during the day, so she has to go. And so Zan and John are the ones left on the planet to try and convince Dargo to come back with them. And it goes all right for the first night. Uh, well, Dargo's finally gotten laid. He's, you know, making it with the ladies. So that's, that's go Dargo. Which I have to, I have to ask like a technical okay. question. I'm like, so it's so awkward that literally they have like a pull down bed and he's like, you guys can sleep here. And then he closes these doors that clearly have no soundproofing. They're just like wooden doors with like slats. And I'm like, oh, that's got to be awkward listening to Dargo all night long. You notice when they're first falling asleep, so first of all, Zan's like, we can totally share. And she's like naked with a blanket wrapped around her. And John is super uncomfortable with this. But he's got like his arm over his eyes and is clearly not sleeping. Probably just listening to Dargo and his his date for the night hooking up in the other room. And it's and then there's one point when Zan puts her hand on his genitals and he's like, no. And he lifts it away. And it's just there's some really fun little interplays going on there. Mm-hmm. But so it's up to the two of them, and so uh, so the next day, Dargo's like, even though it was supposed to be rest day, Dargo's like, it's time for work because everyone forgets that it's supposed to be a rest day, and so he and he and Zan are out in the fields, and Zan's talking with him, trying to convince him to come back with them, but then sh- something strange happens. She starts being like, oh, the dirt, I love the dirt, I feel so content, and it's the same same thing that's happened to Dargo is Zan succumbs to this brainwashing, and she was snacking on the tannet root while she's doing it. So there's that hint that that's what's behind it all. And meanwhile, John gets basically grabbed and forcibly joins the resistance that exists on the planet. It's really not very clear because the resistance is kind of pathetic and doesn't explain anything. They just shove the grossest worm into his belly button. And it's just like, (laughs) ah. Yeah, and the resistance is like four people. We are not led to believe that it's a real resistance. We're led to believe it's like, for people right, and they're like naturally immune to the effects of the tannet root and so that's why they give him the worm is because the worm will actually metabolize the the toxins in the tannet root so john will be protected from it but he has no idea what's going on at first because they don't explain it so he's sick and confused but eventually he you know confronts them and, and figures it out and what they want is that they're like look we're prisoners here essentially on our own planet we are being our civilization is crumbling around us like the city is crumbling and we want you to go in your ship and find somebody to help us. And the other major thing that's been going on is that their planet is now becoming a wasteland because of the monocropping of the tannet root. Like their whole planet is being destroyed, and so that's what they want. One of the interesting things about this small little group is like they don't really well organized, and they're up against the leader of their community, who is one, you know, one of the species. And she's also immune. She also has the worm. And she also sees that everything's falling apart. And we kind of learn as, you know, John has to pretend to, to be also finding contentment. Otherwise, he'll get killed. And she approaches him also wanting to use Moya. And what she wants to do is rip off the overlords. Mm-hmm. We don't know who they are yet. And she wants to steal the next crop from them, even though she doesn't know who they are or why they want the crop. And it turns out to be an interesting piece of world building. Because when she shows John the warehouse, there's all these Peacekeeper logos around that he recognizes. So even out here in the Uncharted Territories, the Peacekeepers have their sticky fingers everywhere. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if that's partly because they can get away with it if they're not in the Charted Territories in their jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. The Tannet Root turns out to make Chakan oil, which is what they use for all their weaponry. All their weaponry runs on Chakan oil. 
And it is it is really good world building because, yeah, maybe I think there are a couple of reasons they might have used this planet. Maybe this planet was just particularly well suited. Maybe they were searching for a planet that had a certain chemicals in the soil and this planet had that. Or maybe it is because essentially they have enslaved an entire society. And whereas in the charted territories versus the uncharted territories, there probably would have been more pushback had they just enslaved an entire society and brainwashed an entire society. Here there isn't. That's a possibility. I find Volme to be just a very interesting character. Because when we meet up with the um, with the resistance, they present her as super evil and as not really caring about the society. And you can't really argue that she does care about the society, but I I think that she sees the writing on the walls, and it must feel very lonely to her because we aren't really given the impression that she knows that there are a lot of other people out there that are resistant to the Tanit root. So essentially she feels like the only one out there with her eyes open and watching her society crumble. Yeah. And there's a good, I want to go back to that scene because when she takes John to the, to the warehouse, she starts talking about Moya and she starts talking about starships. And this is what she says. My people never aspired to travel the heavens. This planet is our home. Was our home. I suppose a starship can be a home. It has been for you, hasn't it? It's nothing compared to your paradise here. And so whereas in the last episode we had this female villain who was gross and disgusting, I think here you have a female villain that you can empathize with. Yeah, she's very much... I like your point about her being lonely because she's also she seems so resigned. And what she wants out of it is she wants to sell the, the Tana root for, for a profit because if it's value to someone, then it's value, it could be valuable to her. She never says what she wants to do with that profit, though, and I could definitely see, I, we don't get any textual evidence of this, but I could definitely see it as being a way that she could maybe improve things for her people there. That's me kind of projecting onto that, but that's kind of what I like to think about her because she definitely doesn't come across as an evil villain type at all. Mm-hmm. I really liked Volme because we got to see a couple of different things. She does look physically very different from the rest of the population on the planet. The rest of the population has very red skin and white eyes, and we're not sure if that's because they spend their entire days outside, so now their skin is really, really tan, because they do essentially look like <laughs> like somebody that's been at the beach for way too long and is going to get skin damage very, very soon. Perfect for the Australian extras. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I know, I kept being like, how much makeup did you actually have to use <laughs> on these extras? I gotta say, Tenga's legs look pretty darn good. <laughs> Right? So, and then you have Volme, who's pale, pale skin, and in the right light, it almost looks like they've put scaling on her, and she has these bright red eyes. But then she has the same hair as the rest of the population. And I just, and then her voice, the rest of the population talks very normally. They talk very Australian, given where it was filmed. But she speaks in that kind of a very different cadence. And I think that that really is an effective way that Farscape 
does a little bit of a little bit of world building where we don't look at her and think that she's supposed to be sedation. We look at her and think that she's supposed to be other. Right. So they figure out eventually that the shotgun oil that's needed for sebation weaponry comes from these tanet roots. And how that's figured out is part of the B-plot and the second mystery that goes on during this episode, which is actually probably my, my preferred of the two storylines. It's just so great. It's Aaron and Rigel. So at the very beginning, Rigel is eating some of the tanet root because, as we have established, Rigel eats. And so while they're um, <laughs> trying to initially convince Dario to come back. So he goes out to pee. And ends up screaming that he's being assassinated because a bomb has gone off. No one believes him, of course. I think Aaron has this really great little line of, like, no one here knows you. Only people who know you want you dead. (laughs) So anyway, she takes Rigel back up to Moya to try and figure out what's going on with him. And eventually figures out that, oh shit, it's his bodily fluids have been transformed into explosives. And now Aaron, who has to stay on Moya because the heat on the planet's too much for her, has to figure out why with science. And she is not at all comfortable with that at all. (laughs) In fact, I'm going to play a really great clip between her and John. So she's up on Moya and John's down on the planet with San. The Rydal's assassination attempt, he caused it himself. His body fluids have turned explosive. I stand corrected. What am I going to do now? Do you want to live? Then you better stop sweating, so calm down now. Aaron, listen, you gotta run some tests. Okay, use the, uh, the scanner thing in the, uh, in the maintenance bay. No, I'm not the scientist. I know that. Look, just have Pilot help you. What am I supposed to do in the meantime? Isolate him. Uh, no fluids, no food. <gasps> Rigel is horrified. I love Rigel's little... <gasps> no what? food! Oh, his worst nightmare. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I think you have a good point about Aaron. This is not something that fits comfortably with Aaron, her being a scientist. And when I was pulling quotes, I agree with you that Aaron, the Aaron this episode is, first of all, she is the funniest character this entire episode. Hands she down. She really is. She just has, ugh. And you can tell that she's doing it on purpose. You can tell she's just being sarcastic and being a jerk and, you know, really irritated and it's just so hilarious and she has she has more growth this episode than almost anybody yeah she really is pushed outside of her comfort zone and so she has to work with pilot to figure out you know what is wrong with rigel they don't know why he's doing this but he's doing this and so it's actually really also really great for her and pilot's relationship because they'll have to work together again but then pilot it turns out doesn't really know as much about science as everyone thinks he knows so even though he's running a ship he is still he himself feels like very much out of his element in doing this kind of scientific analysis where they have to scan Rigel's body and analyze what's going in and what's coming out so the clip I'm going to play is is one of these moments where Aaron is like really frustrated she wants to stop doing this she doesn't want to do this and she wants Pilot to take over being in charge of it and he says, no, we, I'm, I'm not any good at this either. So here it is. Look, all this analysis trend comes really naturally to you. It just doesn't to me. On the contrary, I too have difficulty with complex sciences. Yeah, right. When a pilot is bonded to a leviathan, as I am bonded to Moya, it is a navigator, a monitor of all the living ship's functions. 
The analysis of scientific data is not something I know or easily understand. Yeah, but you're good at it. I study every chance I can. Moya was born with a very complete bank of scientific data. I only comprehend a fraction, I'm afraid. Do the others know about this? I have told no one. I prefer they didn't know. But you've told me. I feel I can trust you. So there you have Pilot, who feels just as much out of his element. And what I really love about this is he trusts Aaron with this information. And it's a way of him saying, look, I know you're uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable, too. And they're kind of bonding over it. And I really like that mm -hmm. between the two of them. And it also, I think, encourages her to, you know, get back into it and not give up. Yeah. And at the end of that conversation, there's this really telling moment where she says, have you shared this with anybody else? And he says, no, but I feel like I can trust yeah. you. And you can kind of, it's, and it very much becomes a secret between them because she at no point tells anybody else about this. This is just something that stays between the two of them. And I think what I really, really like about their relationship this episode is that Aaron is pushing herself outside and Pilot is nothing but supportive. There's no point where Pilot puts her down and no point where Pilot makes her feel less than. Yeah, he is always with her in this, and they're very much together in solving this mystery. It's, it's just really wonderful. I just love seeing her and Pilot working together. They just have this great chemistry, and I just love it. Yeah, they really do. And it, what's interesting is that Pilot being a victim of the Peacekeepers, but at the same time, he participated in Peacekeeper activities to the extent that he was piloting the ship at the Peacekeeper's discretion. He was used as a tool by the Peacekeepers. So I think that he, more than anybody else, has more empathy for Aaron than I think... I mean, John obviously has a lot of empathy for her, but... I think that's right, because because he has worked with them in a personal one-on-one -on -one position before, you know? And that, that always breaks down barriers. I mean, it's breaking down barriers with this crew. So I could definitely see, see that aspect to him. Yeah, and... Aaron, like I said, Aaron, this episode just has some of the funniest lines. And partially it is, you know, for example, when, <laughs> when she reminds Rigel that it's only people that know him <laughs> that want to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> but she also, she tries this episode to use one of John's words, because we've talked in the past <laughs> about John using language and using Americanisms as a way of kind of being like, hey, I know my own stuff that none of you guys know. And there's this really great moment where Aaron tries to use one of his words back at him, and it just is so funny. She gives me a woody. Woody. It's a human saying. I've heard you say it often. When you don't trust someone or they make you nervous, they give you... Willies. She gives you the willies. <laughs> Yes, those little moments when you actually make a double entendre, <laughs> or a single entendre, rather. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's just so delicious. Yeah. I also like her interactions with Rigel this episode, because this, she's trying to save his life. And, you know, two episodes ago, when Rigel was kidnapped, and he was saying, no one's going to re come rescue me or pay my ransom, because everyone hates me. And yet here... 
there is no really question about it. Aaron does help him, and she doesn't give up on him, and she keeps trying to figure out what's going on with him to save his life. Now, poor Rigel gets, like, frozen. He's put in cryogenesis or cryostasis so he won't sweat and accidentally explode everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he keeps complaining after he's thawed out that, you know, he was frozen and frozen, and she was like, I saved your life. <laughs> it's still this little hostile back and forth, but it's, I don't know. I think she's, her feelings for Rigel have, have grown a little bit. Mm-hmm. They've definitely warmed. I think it's a unique contrast between her at the end reminding Rigel that she's a peacekeeper and she's trained to kill, but she saved his life, so he should be grateful. Yeah. And her earlier in the episode when she realizes that his bodily fluids are explosive and flat out tells him, if you want to live, stop sweating. (laughs) And then at the end, she and Rigel have this really interesting moment because, like I said, she flat out reminds him that she saved his life. And then when John, she saves John's life by science, too, by pulling out the worm, Mm -hmm. John and Rigel have this interesting conversation that kind of calls back to that moment where she saved his life. And there's a little bit of camaraderie between John and Rigel. I love that one. When frozen, twice. Silence, you're both fine. Anyway, get ready. Pilot wants to starburst us out of here. Hey, Rigel. Mm Mm-hmm. What's up with her? Oh, she thinks she's a scientist now. False superiority! I am not a scientist. I am, however, what I have always been, and that is superior. If I were warmer, I would have an appropriately venomous reply. (laughs) (laughs) I love Rigel. He's like, I'm going to give you a comeback later. Yeah, I love how he's like, I love how he treats him owing her his life. He treats it like, be warned. (laughs) I want to give you something later. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. But it's also, uh, I think that that kind of, I am what I always have been superior, Mm. is kind of her covering her nervousness from earlier in the episode. Or the fact that earlier in the episode, she was faced with something that she didn't think she could do. And she didn't want to do. And so she's kind of covering up that open wound with this, I'm always superior. What are you guys talking about? I do whatever I want. Right, right. And that's, I love that you say that because it's also, you know, part of her relationship with John, I think, shifts a little bit in this episode. You know, she has to call him for help, first of all. And then he gives her some tips and then basically abandons her to figure it out. And she has to, has to go through the scientific process. She has to work with Pilot. And so she comes back down to the planet at the end of the episode to kind of have their final showdown. And, you know, John is like super stressed out by the current political situation situation that he's dealing with. And she's, he's like, I don't have time to explain. Just help me. And she's like, what do you think I've been doing? So I'm going to play that quote here because it's one of my favorites where she goes through like all the agony that she has been going through this entire episode. Would you just shut up and help? Help? What do you think I've been doing up there in the ship, playing games with Rigel? Oh, look, I know it's so difficult up there in the ship. Difficult? I had to stop him from blowing himself up to bits. I had to figure out what was causing the problem, and I had to fix it. Yes, I know. And we're all grateful that you did the Madame Curie thing. What? The mo- Who? Madame Curie. She's, she's a scientist. Scientist? Yes. What I had to do up there was like a field strategy exercise. Only the enemy wasn't trying to kill me. The enemy was a puzzle, and there were lots of different... 
pieces and independently, separately. They didn't, they didn't make any sense. And I had to think it through really hard. And I had to work out, try different combinations of putting them together. And then finally, I worked out what had happened. And I worked out what I had to do. <laughs> what? This is great. You're trading in your pulse rifle for the junior chemistry kit. Well, my pulse rifle wasn't any use to me this time. <laughs> and I love that it's like John at the beginning of this rant is just like so fed up and but then there's this is like this fake smile because they're fake smiling for the guards turns into this real smile as she keeps going on and on about how hard it was to do science and figure out a puzzle but then she did it and it was great and he's just so proud of her and I just love it and I I love that she she gets to kind of go through the science process even though she calls it harder than like what she thinks science should be you know, like, like it's a field strategy exercise. So clearly this should be harder than, you know, what scientists and techs do because that's what she's so disdainful of all the time. <laughs> and I think for, for John, it's really great to see this side of her too because she is try she did try and she succeeded and she, she let herself go through that process. And I think that's, he starts to respect her a little bit more. And I think through this process, she starts to respect him a little bit more for what they do. So they're they're learning more about each other and, and their willingness to change. And this kind of holds through to that last scene that the, the two of them have together when they actually thank each other very sincerely and, and very kindly with no sarcasm whatsoever. And Aaron even gives John some advice about how to handle Dargo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and calling back to her giving him advice about how to handle Dargo, in that earlier quote I played where... Dargo is is talking about staying on the planet and she reminds him he's a warrior. I think that to a certain extent that feels a little bit like a betrayal to her because she and Dargo have been building this relationship based on them both being warriors, based on them having each other's back. And then here's kind of the one character that she does have a, a growing relationship with and he's telling her that he doesn't want to do it anymore. And he's telling her that he wants to stay on this planet. And I think that's kind of rough for her. Yeah. Um, yeah, but she and John, I think their relationship really grows also this episode, and I think that it is it is entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> it's entertaining, and like I said, she just has the best lines this episode. Like, the the physical comedy in her doing that rant about you know, science being like a field exercise. <laughs> it's the physical comedy with them both doing it with these wide fake smiles on is, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it just completely contrasts with the tone, but at the same time, it's just, I don't know, it's just perfect. And the other characters that have a, an interesting relationship this episode are Zan and Dargo, because Zan doesn't get the worm, so Zan also drinks the Kool-Aid, and... You can see that moment where she does kind of, she does switch from being concerned about Dargo to kind of being like, oh yeah, this is really nice, this brainwashing thing. <laughs> I'm going to play the clip just because it's the first time that we hear anything about Zan's background, really. And also, I th in the last episode, I complained that we heard about Dargo's crime, but it was kind of fake because you didn't get any details. And also just because of the the context was so weird and gross but here you have two of the crew so two characters that do have a building relationship with each other and Zan is confiding in Dargo about something from her past that feels very honest you're still so young Dargo is this the way you honestly want to spend the rest of your days do you want to spend the rest of your days on the run 
I know such decisions can come upon one quickly. My choice to join the Delvian Sikh, to become a priest, occurred in a matter of a blink of an eye. One moment I was lying in my cell, a savage, capable of anything. The next, the truth was revealed to me, and I knew my true path. Such revelations are possible. So right there you get an interesting vision of Zan, because she says that when she decided to join the Sikh, she was in a cell, a savage, capable of anything, which is not a Zan we know. And I think it's a really interesting character note for her that bef before she joined the Sikh, she was already a criminal. Yeah. And it goes back to, you know, that first episode in Premiere, she and Dargo are talking a little bit about their, their past with each other. She's like, I was an anarchist. And you kind of, that's a little bit of a weird note for her at the beginning because you like, she doesn't act that way at all in the first several episodes. But here we find out where that comes from is like she was a different person before she was imprisoned and she she changed herself and she decided to become this person that she is today mm -hmm. and like I said it, this just feels more honest and it feels more real to me than any of the than the previous note we had on Dargo where he'd done this crime that was so terrible this feels like something that was deserved this feels like something that the the show really worked towards yeah and what I like about her and Dargo's conversations in this episode is there's very much the contrast, and they bring it up a couple of times, contrast between, you know, the life they live, the life they used to lead, you know, Dargo as a warrior and then a prisoner and a fugitive, and Zan as a savage back when she was an anarchist, and then the lives that they choose or that they want to have. So Zan chose to become a priest and have a better life and a better spiritual life with herself. And here, Dargo, is he really loves farming, and he's very content with it. And even though he's on the Tanit route at the time of the episode, we get a really interesting conversation between them at the end of the episode when they're back on Moya flying away. And it's Dargo confessing to, to Zan that really, no, he's always had this, this desire to be a farmer. When I was a boy, I dreamed of two very different lives. Only two. I wanted hundreds. Two were enough. I would be a magnificent warrior. Merciless in battle. Fearless. Kindly write Shindok's sonnets about. That is a healthy dream. I also wanted the simple life. Family. Children. Furnished garden that I planted with my own hands. Those kinds of dreams cannot be found in Grey Fluxen. You have to build them. And I promise you, your hands are still strong. And there is plenty of time. Oof, I just love that last note of your hands are still strong. It's so poetic and so beautiful. And also, you know, Zan's speaking from experience here a little bit too, because she built her life as a priest, you know? Mm-hmm. And it is interesting because she kind of contrasts finding the life with building the life because Dargo found this planet and he was like, oh, this is what I want and I can just fit in here. And Zan kind of tells him that 
given our pasts, you are going to have to build that. You are going to have to find somewhere and put your two hands to work and build it. Like nobody's going to give this to you. And the other thing I really love about this conversation is it's so relatable to the audience and to everybody because it's just universal. You know, everyone has this vision of what they're going to be like when they're an adult as a kid. And even when you're an adult living your life, you have this vision of what your life should be. And all these ideas of where it could go and all these branching things. And, you know, Zan's like, you have a hundred different things I wanted to do. And so I think that's hugely relatable to the audience in this really quiet scene between them. And I just, I just love how, while Dargu is slightly disappointed with what the outcome has been, Zan says, don't give up hope, essentially, and keep, keep working for it. You can have that if you work for it. Oh, yeah, definitely. It does call back to her earlier mention of, of his youth. Because Dargo is, I think he's only like 30 or something like that. He's in his 30s. And Zan is, like Rigel, much older yeah. than that. There's, I think they're supposed to both be over 100 yeah. cycles, something like that. I can't remember how old they're supposed to be. I want to say like 900 or something, but I'll have to verify that when it comes up again. Yeah. But so we are given the impression that that she is seeing life through a longer lens than he is. And that even though she also, you know, drank the Kool-Aid and was feeling really at peace and wanted to stay there when she was high, that she also looks at him and she only sees the potential for where he's going. I really like that that thought that the long-term view versus versus a young person trying to figure it out and feeling so such despair that it's not working out yet. She's like, just be patient. And it actually kind of goes back to what she told John once upon a time, you know, time and patience. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing is that I think that that's really how she sees almost all of them. Like she and she and Aaron haven't really had any moments together yet, but she and Pilot and she and Rigel and she and John and she and and Dargo, they have these moments where you just see her being at peace. And we've seen her frustrated and we've seen her having higher expectations than people can live up to. But I think that she always sees people in their best light. For example, even when she introduces the crew to Volme, she still introduces Rigel as, and his eminence, Rigel the 16th, or Domina Rigel the 16th. And it's, it was just a very neat note for me that she wasn't like, this is Aaron and John Crichton and Rigel, that she still kind of sees them. She sees she sees them and she's respectful of Rigel. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I liked about this scene is I think this is the genesis of the Xan and Dargo shipping that happened in the first season. Mm. So Dargo has been partying every night and finally getting some. And he says at the beginning of the scene that he would have asked Xan to spend the night with him. And she says, I would have said yes. But the way they say it, it's just it's very much friends, you know? It's like... They are respecting each other, they like each other, and that's what it is. It's not necessarily a deep love or anything, but it's more about caring and sharing with somebody. Mm-hmm. That, that makes sense. But I really like that that note you get out of it, too, that there could be more between them as well. Though when they get back to Moya, they're not in that space anymore. So it's, you know, it's different again. It's back to the mm-hmm. way it was between them. But there's still that, that shared element between them that comes through. Mm-hmm. I, I see the shipping. And I definitely think that they probably could have had a nice affair, but I think fundamentally they're just too different. Yeah. And while Zan has been super open about sex and she's been very sex positive and Dargo obviously also has been very sex positive, 
I just think that emotionally, neither of them are in a place right now where they could do a relationship. No. Yeah. And I think also that they're better suited to being friends because mm-hmm. their temperaments are so different. And we see by who they end up hooking up with later, it kind of makes sense. You know, they're, they have a different relationship. And that's why I see it definitely more as friends. Though I do like the fact that there is the possibility that they could be, could be more together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, but I don't even think they would have been really good friends with benefits, I'll be honest. I just think they're not that. Well, I don't necessarily think they would be sleeping together, but just that they, their, their friendship is better than a romantic relationship. Yeah, for certain. So now I want to kind of bring it back to the conclusion of the episode where we have this political situation on the planet and we have the resistance who wants to overthrow uh, Volmey, who's the local power. And we have John and Aaron who just went Dargo and Zan back and they basically generate this confrontation and they do it by getting Rigel to pee explosive pee and get everyone's attention. And it's just wonderful. <laughs> I mean, you know, most shows don't have pee being a very major plot point. And it's just great when you get to have that here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And it's so great because there's this moment where John is like, Rigel, now, Rigel, now. And Rigel isn't quite peeing on cue. <laughs> and you see him kind of working himself up to it and eventually he gets it and you know fireballs of urine come out of him and get everyone's attention and that's basically the point that john and aaron are making is look through chemistry you get shock and oil out of these tannin roots and they're providing the weaponry and that's the big reveal of it all mm-hmm. and aaron has this really great little biz like i can show you how to make the shock and oil because she has figured out through figuring out how to save rigel the chemistry that they need to do it and so they end up basically saying to the, the populace, the, our, our oppressed brainwashed cult of oppressed laborers, of build your own weapons now. You have the means to do it. We will help you out and go, go overthrow those peacekeeper overlords of yours. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how the, the main plot of the episode ends, is with them arming the rebels, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is, on some levels, you do kind of wonder, like, how feasible it is for what's clearly a a relatively peaceful population to (laughs) overtake peacekeepers. But on the other hand, it ends on such a high note. Do you know what I mean? It ends in a really satisfying way. They have to give them the opportunity to try. You know, if they want to try and fight, even if they lose, they deserve the dignity of at least trying to get out from under the peacekeeper boot. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. And, you know, they're not trying to to save them themselves or anything like that. And they don't even have to convince Volmey that hard. I mean, she's, she's pretty quickly on board with the idea once she is given a means to do it, you know, Mm -hmm. that helplessness that she probably had been feeling that we talked a little bit about that loneliness and, and seeing the writing on the wall. Well, now the writing has changed. You know, they are not completely mm-hmm. at the whim of the peacekeepers anymore. They actually have a means to fight back. So even if they lose, they take that opportunity. Yeah. yeah, and I think that the interesting thing about Volmey is also there's this moment at the end where kind of the lead of the rebellion, who's this older man who we learn is a concert musician who was very well known for his talents, where he actually ends up getting on his knees in front of her and before this, you, were not, you weren't quite sure who she was before the peacekeepers came because it's, it's very clear that the peacekeepers have come not just within one generation, but probably within the past 20 years. Yeah, it's recent. 
Yeah, very, very recently, because the younger woman still remembers her father as this concert musician. So I kind of got the impression that before this, Volme was probably actually the leader of her people, mm -hmm. that maybe that's why she looked a little different, was that she was the, the leader. There was something about her that made her the leader bef even before. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Because it's definitely a gesture of respect that he gives her and respects that she will make a decision that then the rest of the people will follow too. Yeah, because even though even though there's a few people that are off the tenant route and even though everybody's pretty confused now, just because they don't have any crop other than the tenant route, she would have to lead them until they were at least able to grow things that don't poison them. Yeah. And, you know, get the funds for it by potentially selling the current crop of tannet root they have, or part of it anyway, get some money, mm -hmm. figure out what to do from there. So what would you give this episode? I think I would give this probably a three. I don't like it as much as Throne for a Loss, because I just think Throne for a Loss is hysterically funny. But I definitely like it as one of the, the better of the early season one episodes. So I'd, I'd give it a three. Really, I'd give it a four. Just because I found it so funny. There's this, I'm going to play this clip that I forgot to play earlier, but just, just to show you the sort of comedy, the sort of really dry comedy that they have in this episode. Me. You're dead. It's been three days. He still can't be freaking like that. Slux and hyperage, it doesn't just go away. You were wise to hide as you did, John. Darko's been off the ship for three whole days, but we couldn't find you to tell you. You hide very well. You must have had a lot of practice. <laughs> now, this episode is funny. I, I definitely agree with that. But I don't know. I just, I like it well enough. I guess that's what I say. It's, you know, it's about a mm -hmm. three. There's something about Throne for a Loss that just, I don't know. I just, that one I like a little bit better, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, also, you know, we're not really grading with a rubric here, so I feel like at the end of the season when we've gone through this, we're going to be like, what were we thinking? You know, because we have to recalibrate. We might have to adjust our scale a little bit. <laughs> yeah, okay, so as we keep going, if, if you know, I'll go back and I'll retroactively grade, downgrade this probably. And on John Crichton white shirt watch, by the way, John Crichton was wearing a black shirt this episode. Black shirt and his vest, and then he got into the local digs in red. Yes. Also, Zan doesn't look very good in red. No. Because she was wearing them too. No, yeah. I think that when you're a blue creature, you pretty much have to stick with blue. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked our episode, please feel free to rate us on iTunes. That's how other people can find us. And we'll see you next week with PK Tech Girl. Nice. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.